Lord, I have no other claim before you but Jesus. And I thank you that he stands and intercedes for me. I thank you that he pleads my case before you, prays for me. I thank you that I can stand before you because of what he's done. Because I know that in myself, I do not deserve such an opportunity. And I praise you that you don't leave me to myself. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, I pray for your blessing on our time. I pray that we would understand your word clearly. I pray that you, by your spirit, would speak to our hearts motivate us, draw us to follow after you. I pray that we would be sensitive and that we would be responsive in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be right here, right now. Help us to value what is truly valuable this morning. I pray that you would be honored in our time. I pray that you would be lifted up. I pray that the words that I say would be faithful to your word. Lord, use this time, lift up Christ, even as we speak here. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, everyone. We're uh, on the second week of a series that we're going to be doing on, or are doing, on developing leaders and leadership development and what that looks like. And, of course, we could have gone a million different ways to, uh, to accomplish this, but we wanted to start where the Bible starts, which is in the home, and then we want to continue. Oh, I'm sorry, children uh, three through third grade, I believe, are dismissed for Children's Church. Is that right? Okay, all right. Man, you got to get me stopped earlier. I'm just going to keep rolling, and there's no telling when I might get around to making an announcement. <laughs> Thanks for reminding me. All right. Leadership development, how do we do that? What does that look like? So this week we're going to look at discipleship, personal discipleship, and in a simple way, right? Because we could really kind of make that complicated. We could make it something that's difficult to accomplish with a long list and stuff like that, and we don't want to do that. So we want to talk about simple discipleship today. First of all, I want to start by defining what a disciple is. A disciple is really a, a learner, a follower of Christ, uh, someone who goes after him. Of course, when we read the Gospels, we read about his disciples. And uh, sometimes there were a few disciples. And sometimes there were hundreds of disciples who followed Jesus. But they were people who followed him around, listened to his teaching. And they uh, tried to live like him. They tried to follow him as as their master. And you can see uh, they succeeded more or less at different times um, throughout the gospels. And it's actually kind of encouraging when you read that and you see that, that they're as thick skulled as I am. And it kind of makes you feel like there may, might be hope. Uh, but that's what a disciple is. And, um, this morning, as we talk about discipleship, I want to, I want us to have a couple things in mind. First of all, I'll just remind you of the great commission. Okay. The great commission, the assignment that God gave the church, what Jesus told his disciples, he wanted them to accomplish Right, And so you find that in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. And here's what Jesus says. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And we we talk about the Great Commission a lot. And for good reason, it's the assignment Jesus gave us. 
We should probably talk about that. We should be about doing it. We should know how to accomplish it. But I want to draw your attention to the fact of exactly what the assignment is. Make disciples. He didn't say go and plant churches, though he wants us to do that. He didn't say go and do great miracles. He didn't say go and pray for people. He wants us to do those kinds of things. He wants us to be in service to him. But what he did say explicitly was go and make disciples of all nations. And so we want to talk about discipleship. And I'm going to try and keep it uh, short and simple today and look at a few of the things that are involved in learning to walk with Jesus, right? Because we can't follow him like his disciples followed him around um, you know, Jerusalem and Galilee and Caesarea Philippi. And we, we can't, we can't walk with him uh, right now and, and like follow right after him like that, but we can because he's given us his word. And so we want to follow after him. We want to look at what, uh, some things are that are involved in learning to walk with Jesus even more. And I want us to turn to John chapter eight, right off the bat, turn to John chapter eight and look at the first one. What's involved is abiding in Jesus word. Abiding in Jesus' word. Look at John chapter 8. I want to read just a couple of verses there. Verses 31 and 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So he talks about abiding in his word. So first of all, what is abiding? It's not really a word we use all that much. Uh, To abide in something means to live there or to remain there, to be there for a long time, uh, to stay in that thing. It means to continue on in that thing. And a, a way I always remember it is the word that we do use, probably more than abide unless you're in church circles, is the word abode. Where's your abode? That's where you live. Right? It's the same word. It's related there. And so uh, to abide means to live there, to stay there, to be there in Jesus' word. Okay, So that's what abide means. It's not really a common word. But, but what about Jesus' word? He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So what's his word? Well, of course, if you, if you can picture the scene here, it's people following Jesus around and then he would turn around at key points and he would teach him some stuff and then he would pull some aside and talk to him and things like that. So it seems clear that his word is his very teaching. The things that he was saying to his disciples or saying to the crowds, his teaching, right? And so uh, certainly his word in, includes the things that he taught. Well, so that makes me think, so is that just the gospels? Right, even just the red part, if you have a red letter edition, is it just the red part that really is being talked about here? But if you think about what Jesus taught, he wasn't, he wasn't an innovator. He was true to the Old Testament. His text was the Old Testament. When you read what he teaches, you see again and again these themes come up that, man, that's from the Old Testament. He's, he's referring to that passage. He's referring to, to this idea, right? Even the, his development of the idea of the Messiah and of him being the Messiah, of course, that's an Old Testament idea. And so really, it's his teaching, of course, is, is, is his word, but also his text, which is the Old Testament. That's what he taught, right? And so to abide in his word would include abiding in, um, the Old Testament, which is the, the, the part of the book that he taught, right? The New Testament didn't exist at that point. But even if we look at the Great Commission, which we just looked at, right? He, he commanded, he instructed, he commissioned his disciples to go and make disciples 
and teach people to observe all that I've commanded you. Well, and so they went and did that. They traveled and they preached and it turns out they wrote some stuff down, right? And we have that as our New Testament, right? That's our New Testament. And so that, that's uh, part of what the disciples were fulfilling in writing the New Testament. They were carrying out the Great Commission. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Because countries that exist now and people groups that exist now that didn't even exist then, you can take Jesus' very teaching to them right here. And you can take this letter that, uh, that Paul wrote or that John wrote or that Peter wrote. You can take those teachings to the ends of the earth to make disciples. Right? So that's, that's what Jesus' word is. So, so then uh, to abide in Jesus' word means to know what he says, to know what his word says, first of all. So we probably should know it. We should be aware of what's written in it. Right? We need to learn it. We need to study it. Otherwise, how can we obey it? How can we keep it? How can we abide in it if we're not aware of what's in it? So first of all, know what Jesus says. Uh, second of all, we need to take it to heart and obey it. Right? To abide in it, in, in, it implies this close kind of relationship. And so uh, it's, it, it means to take it to heart, to do what it says. When Jesus says, uh, do this, we understand what he's teaching and we keep that close to our heart and we do that thing. That's part of what it means to abide in it, to take it to heart, to obey it, and also to hold it as the highest uh, governing standard for our life. Right? When I'm going to make a decision about, about something, what's going to be the highest priority in my mind? It needs to be God's word. Very often, in practicality, the way it works out is sometimes I kind of set this aside and I operate on really what I want. And that's my highest governing authority, what I desire, right? what I want, or what someone told me, or uh, whatever I can logically think through, or whatever my, dis- my decision-making paradigm is, if it doesn't have God's word at the very top as the final governing authority, then I'm not really abiding in his word. I'm abiding in something else. Yeah, I know what Jesus' word says, but I'm going to do this thing because of A, B, and C, right? So uh, to abide in his word means to have it also as your highest authority. It means to have it in your, in your head. It means to have it in your heart. You're obedient to it. You're going to do what it says. It means to have it on your mind. You're thinking about it. You're dwelling in it, right? It's your abode. You're abiding in his word. And it means to have it on your lips, when I answer a question, when I go to work through, solve a problem, when I parent, when I minister, when I talk to my wife, everything that I do needs to be informed by God's word. So that's what it means to abide. I love what he says here. The, the, the second, second point here, who abides? The second question, who is it that abides? Well, I love what he says here. If you abide my word, you are truly my disciples. You are truly my disciples. If you abide in my word... Now, that makes sense if you understand a little bit of the context here, right? When it says in verse 31 that uh, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, he didn't just mean there were some people who were of the Jewish faith that he was speaking to and they believed in him, right? Very often in the, in the Gospels, you'll see the, Jew, the Jews, that term the Jews, referred to not as the group of people who are uh, of the Jewish faith, but it means those who are the leaders, the, the, 
the religious leaders of the Jews is really kind of what's in mind there. And you can kind of see that play out a little bit more through this passage. But what's happened is Jesus has been speaking to them and um, he's taught them some things and they seem to be like, okay, with what he's teaching. And they're kind of following along and they're listening. They're kind of asking questions and stuff. But as you watch this passage go on, right after Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, then uh, he, the con- conversation continues. And if you continue on reading in John chapter 8, you see that actually they begin to question him and kind of doubt him. And then it gets to the point where they actually call him a, you know, a dirty Samaritan and, a, and you have a devil, right? So they, they come to a conclusion that's very contrary to the truth. So they actually reveal what Jesus says here. He says, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples because he knows his crowd and he sees that after a while, later on in that same conversation, it's the same group of people and they get to the point where they're like, Jesus, we don't want anything to do with you. You're crazy. You probably have a demon and you're from the bad side of town, right? And so that's that's the way they they talk about Jesus. And so uh, what that brings us to is this idea of Jesus saying here that, that perseverance, continuing on, is a key. It's a key mark of true faith or of being a real disciple. As you continue on and you progress through this, you don't come to a point where you're like, all right, Jesus has gone too far. I can't take that. I'm out of here, right? If that point comes, then you're, you're revealing, well, not really truly a disciple like these guys. But to continue following on, to continue persevering. Here's how one commentator put it. Perseverance is the mark of true faith, of real disciples. A genuine believer remains in Jesus' word, in his teaching. That is, such a person obeys it, seeks to understand it better, and finds it more precious, more controlling, precisely when other forces flatly deny it or flatly contradict it, right? And so that's who abides, as a disciple abides in his word. Well, what's the result? What is the result? Well, they demonstrate that they know the truth and that they are free because of it. Look at verse 32. Well, 31, he says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Remember when Pilate asked one time, what is truth? Right? Of course, he's talking to Jesus. He's talking to Jesus who said, I am the truth, right? But you ever thought of that question, what is truth? How do you define truth? Well, truth is what corresponds to reality. It's what corresponds to reality. There's nothing metaphysical, nothing confusing, nothing giant philosophical about that, right? Truth is what corresponds to reality. And so Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples and you will know the truth from abiding in my word. You will understand reality as it really is. You will see things as they really are. You won't be deceived by false religion. You won't be deceived by false notions of what humanity is or who God is or how to have salvation or any of these things. You won't be deceived by those, by those falsehoods. You'll be set free to operate in reality as it really is, knowing that there really is a holy God, knowing that we really are created in his image, and yet we really are sinners, and all of mankind is, and that's, that's the reason our world is in the condition it's in. You get to operate in reality as it really is. You're not confused, right? You're not misled. That's the result of abiding in his, worst, in his, in his word. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
All right, so what's an application for us? Right, you can kind of sense two prongs of what we're doing here, right? We're talking about leadership development. We're talking about discipleship and what it means to be a disciple and to disciple other people, right? So on the one hand, how does this apply to me in my life? Well, I think it's pretty clear. I, I need to be abiding in his word, right? Hold to his word, read his word, understand it, discuss it, right? Talk about it with other people and, and try and Keep that conversation going with one another, that we understand what God's word really says, that we love it, that we hold it uh, close to our heart, and that we make decisions in light of it. That's what it means to abide in his word. So I need to do that. And then also, as I'm involved in discipling other people, bringing other people along after us, right? Uh, that's what di- to disciple means, is to make a little disciple. You're not trying to make them like yourself, really, um, Though Paul did say, you know, follow my example in as, in as much as I follow Christ. And so we do make a disciple, but we're trying to make a disciple of Christ. And when we do that, let's encourage them to love God's word. You know, I talked last week about uh, Bob Burroughs and his, his impact on my life. And I'm not sure I could really quantify that. But a love for God's word is an enormous part of that. That Bob loves God's word. And he passed that on to me. And he passed that on or tried to with all the people that he discipled. And so we need to be training uh, each other that way. We need to be bringing along those that we disciple to love God's word. Abiding in God's word is a key part of growing as a follower of Christ. Another crucial aspect is loving one another. Loving one another. Stay in the book of John, but turn to chapter 13. Loving one another. First of all, let's look at the commandment. John chapter 13, 34 and 35. Jesus talking here and he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another by this. All people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, there's a lot that could be said about loving one another, right? The commandment is a fulfillment of the old Testament law that we love one another, um, And it's interesting, if you look at John chapter 13 and verse 1, right back at the beginning of this chapter, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Right? So he loved them. That's a key element of his discipleship of his own disciples. He loved them. And now he's saying, I want you to love one another that way. Right? It's a, it's a powerful thing. It's a deep-seated thing. So first of all, that's the commandment. Second of all, we have Christ's example, right? He says, he says I want you to, to love one another even as I have loved you. Even as I have loved you. Well, how did Jesus love his disciples? Well, it would take us a while to count all the ways, but what in this chapter, how did he love his disciples? Earlier in the chapter, he washed their feet. Right? He washed their feet. Now that's kind of weird in our context because we wear socks and shoes and not really sandals and, and, uh, and so we don't wash each other's feet usually. Right? But in this culture, it was a normal everyday part of life. You show up at your buddy's house for dinner and the servant would wash your feet. Right? And it was, it was not really a respected thing to do. Like you wouldn't want that job. Sweet, I want to be the foot washer tonight. Right? Because Joe's feet really stink and man, I love it when he comes over because I can wash that stuff off. But that's what they were doing is they were washing off the road, washing off the smell from their feet, right? And Jesus 
with his disciples there, what does he do? He wraps a towel around his waist, gets, gets some water, and he washes their feet. And this is weird because he's the master. And he's serving his disciples this way. They should have been washing his feet. And if you, if you remember the story, I'm not going to read it, but if you remember the story, Peter sort of gets in an argument with him about it because Peter understood that the master shouldn't really be washing the disciples' feet. Right? But that's how Jesus loved his own. Right? If you remember 13.1, it says, having loved them, he loved them to the end. And then he went and washed their feet as an example of that. Right? So this is what we have as an example, Christ's example of loving one another. So I don't want to belabor it too much, but a couple of things that could be drawn quickly, some points that, that we could uh, make. First of all, Jesus was very humble in his love for them. His hum- he came to serve. The master of the universe came to serve. And here he is kneeling at Peter's feet, washing his stinky feet. Very humble. It's self-sacrificial. It's humble and it's self-sacrificial. And it was pretty, probably pretty unpleasant, right? Probably, they didn't have, you know, foot deodorizer and things like that. I'm sure it was not all that pleasant. And yet Jesus did it. He showed his love for them in this way. And it was very personal. You know, someone holding your feet, it's kind of weird. You know, like just imagine, you know, me holding your feet. Okay. It'd be a little weird for me too, but you know, it's very personal. You got the person's foot in your hand. So Jesus' service of them uh, was very humble. It was probably involved some unpleasantness, right? It was self-sacrificial. Here was the master serving his followers, and it was very personal. And so I think that's a great example for us. Well, what's the consequence, all right? Going back to 13, 34, and 35, what's the consequence, right? He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Let that sink in again. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Right? I'm going to cruise through this pretty quickly. God is love. Jesus loved his disciples, loved his people in a very visible way. It was amazing. When you read through, even including this foot washing right here, right? He loved his people in a major way. And they... Uh, his disciples enjoyed his love. They experienced it and they were comforted by his love. And John 13 happens the night before he's going to be crucified. And he's telling them, look, I'm leaving very soon. And you can't go where I'm going. I'm going to be gone. Right? And they, I'm sure they had a million questions. And one of them was, what are we going to do now? He's been taking care of us all this time. And he says, love one another. That love that I've been showing you, I want you to show to one another. Love each other in that way, in this self-sacrificial way, in this humble way, in this personal way, and it might involve unpleasantness to yourself. Love each other that way. And the whole world will see and that they will know that you are my disciples. I I struggle with this. I've I've mentioned this before. I'm, I'm probably not the most loving person, but I can dote on my, you know, little daughter pretty well or whatever, but, but, uh, it's a little bit more challenging uh, for me to, to love people. And so I'm probably not alone in that. But Jesus says, love one another like I have loved you. And boy, I think about how Jesus loved me. That last song that we, that we sang, 
about how much he has loved us and how he's demonstrated that to us encourages me and draws me on and he said that's how we are to love one another not not contentious not holding each other's feet to the fire not not being strict not but loving each other that involves a lot of different things and that looks at a lot of different ways but it's love and so we are to be loving one another and that's the consequences that people will look and they will see and they will know that we are his disciples so how do we apply that? Well, first of all, I, as I apply it to myself again, I want to seek to be loving. Now, this, is, this isn't just, you know, be nice to folks. This is a deep thing. And I'm naturally selfish. And so how do I naturally, how, how do I love someone in a way that overcomes my sin nature, in a way that overcomes my natural bent to focus on myself? Well, it's only by the power of God that I can do that that I can truly love other people and not really kind of want something in return. Yeah, I'll love you if you'll, right? No, it's a, an actual self-giving love like that requires God's work in our lives that we would be able to move that way. It requires a work of the Spirit. But I want to pursue it. I want to pursue loving people. And as I'm discipling someone else, as we are developing leaders, as we are discipling those that we're leading to follow after Christ, let's encourage them to be loving. It's a big deal. Jesus said it was a big deal. They will know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love for one another. So loving each other is a big deal. Abiding in God's word and loving one another are both key parts of the maturing uh, process as disciples, followers of Christ. And last but not least, I want to look at bearing fruit. Bearing fruit. And so let's turn first to Galatians 5. We're going to look at a couple different passages here. Galatians chapter 5. Bearing fruit. First of all, I want to read verse 16. So I'm in Galatians chapter 5. We're looking at the fruit of the Spirit. That's A. The fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then he continues on, he talks about what those, uh, the fruit of the flesh is there. And then in 22, he comes back around and he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And so there we have the fruit of the Spirit. And very similar to love, which we just talked about as point B, or uh, point two, I guess, in your outline, loving one another. And he starts off with love here. It requires the work of the Spirit. It requires the work of the Spirit. There's a lot involved here. It can be pretty convicting. It can be a little bit depressing, depending upon how you read it. If you look, read through slowly, the fruit of the Spirit is love. I kind of lack. Joy, I kind of lack. Peace, right? There's a theme here. Patience, kindness, goodness. If we look at it that way, that man, if I really have to, you know, make this kind of fruit happen in my life, you know, I, I'm toast. This isn't going to work. It's not going to happen. There's a lot in there. I mean, that's a that's a a powerful list of fruit there: love and joy and peace, 
patience and kindness. Right? It kind of sounds a little bit like Jesus. So how do we do that? How do we, how do we bring about? How do we encourage? How do we bear that kind of fruit? Right? Does a, does a branch, you know, just flex until fruit appears? You know? I did it. I made the fruit happen. Of course they don't. Here's the key. Look at verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. The point there being that it is the work of God in our lives to accomplish these things. It's the work of God. And we have a choice. We can either keep in step, as my version says here, or we can ignore, we can turn away, we can follow the flesh, right? In which case, that kind of fruit is not really being developed in our lives. We have other kind of fruit that's being developed in our lives. The fruit of the flesh, the works of the flesh, right up in verse 19 and following. And so in my own life, as I'm growing as a disciple, I want to be looking at this, this list. I want to be thinking about the fact that this is the way the Spirit leads me. This is the way the Spirit's working in my life, right? So if I will walk in step with Him, if I will be obedient to the Spirit, if I will trust him to empower me to do these things, then I'll begin to see him develop this kind of fruit in my life. And the same thing when I'm discipling someone. If I'm, if I'm teaching someone how to follow after Christ, I need to be encouraging them this way about how to walk in step with the Spirit, to be aware of these sorts of things, love and joy and peace, that this is, those things are fruit of the Spirit. And when you see those things growing in your life, encourage them, pursue them. Those are the kind of things that you want to go after. That is the fruit of the Spirit. Second of all, we have the fruit of righteousness. Flip over to uh, Philippians chapter 1. The fruit of righteousness. Philippians chapter 1. Here we have Paul writing to the believers in Philippi. And he's praying for them. He's, this is the introduction to his letter that he's writing to them. He's praying for them here. And we'll, we'll start uh, in verse 8 to get up to speed. For um, Yeah, we'll start in verse 8. For God is my witness how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He's praying for the Philippians that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. The fruit of righteousness. That's a big prayer. Talking to a bunch of people who are not by nature righteous, but unrighteous. But Paul's prayer for them is that they would grow in this way that they would begin to see the righteousness of God in Christ worked out practically in their own lives. That's what he's praying for them. They can't make that happen. They can't snap their fingers and become righteous. They can't do it. But again, I love what he says here. How does it come? The end of verse 11. How does it come? It comes through Jesus Christ. He's the one that gives that righteousness. A couple things are at play here. There's a, there's a righteousness that we have, that we get to have because of who we are in Christ, that we stand before God, and He looks at us and He sees Christ's righteousness. Right? That's one kind of righteousness. That's called justification. There's another kind called sanctification, where that gets worked out practically in our lives. 
right? And it's not just that, sweet, now I'm in a great place, I'm going to go make something of it, right? And then we go work really hard and become righteous. That's not it at all. Verse 11 says that it comes through Jesus Christ. It's his work in our lives. Righteousness, practical working out of righteousness. Now, why do I bring up all this fruit? Why do I bring up the fruit of righteousness and point C, fruit in every good work? Why do I bring up those things? Because sometimes, depending upon what our background is, we think discipleship has to do with learning some habits. Memorizing God's word, uh, praying, um, reading the Bible, maybe sharing our faith, right? We have a list of habits, things that we should do, and we think that is discipleship. That is a part of discipleship, but that is not discipleship. There's another stream of thought that says, if you learn about God and you learn about the gospel and you learn about these things, that is discipleship. I, I can explain this kind of doctrine, I can explain this to you, and I can explain this, and that's discipleship. Well, that's a part of discipleship, but that is not all of it. Neither one of those is all of it. It involves fruit as well. Fruit in our lives that there should be, uh, there will be, as I grow as a, disi- a disciple, there will be increased evidence, fruit in my life. Fruit of the Spirit, you'll begin to see it. The fruit of righteousness, you'll begin to see it worked out practically. And so as we disciple people, we want to teach them things. We want to teach them new habits. And we want them to grow in the Spirit that we would begin to see fruit in their lives, fruit that looks like love and joy and peace and fruit that looks like righteousness. And finally, in Colossians 1.10, if you'll turn over there, fruit in every good work. Kind of a way to sum up the whole thing. Colossians 1.10, fruit in every good work. Again, Paul is writing. He's writing to the believers in Colossae. He's writing the introduction, and as he very often did, he is uh, praying for them. And he gets down to verse 9, and he says, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as, what's the purpose? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Part of the purpose of Paul's prayer and his ministry in their lives is that they bear fruit in every good work. That their lives would be radically changed by the work of God in their lives. And this is what I desire for myself. And this is what I desire of each of you is that we would grow in this way. That, that we would look and see that, no, it's, I, I, haven't, I haven't made a list of good works that I have to go and accomplish. Instead, God has worked in my heart in such a way that he has revolutionized who I am so that I love his word and I abide in it, right? So that I love people and so that I begin to see his fruit worked out in my life and people would look and see, that's a guy full of good works. You see, which came first? The change of God that he wrought in my heart brought about these good works, brought about this life that demonstrates God as it is at work in my life, bearing fruit in every good work. So, my purpose here in talking about discipleship in these terms is so that we can have a very simple understanding of what it means to disciple someone. It might take the form of going through a book together. 
It might take the form of just meeting with someone and reading through the Bible and talking to them. It might take the form of a small group Bible study. It might take the form of a connect group. It can take all different kinds of forms, but it doesn't have to be confusing. And it doesn't have to be beyond our grasp. If you have someone that, that you're looking to disciple, it doesn't, you don't, there's not a formula. You're trying to help them love God's word and abide in it. You're trying to help them love one another. And you're trying to see them walk in step with the spirit and begin to see fruit being born in their lives. Those are the basic things that we're talking about in discipleship. And so we have a lot of mature Christians in this room. And it would be an amazing benefit to our church. And we would see amazing growth and uh, momentum begin to happen if mature believers would come aside, come alongside immature believers and just disciple them. Hey, you know, I've, I'm, I'm old and I've walked with Jesus a long time and I would love to pass on some of that stuff to you. Or I would just love to see you grow in Christ. Can I help you with that? Let's meet together, right? It doesn't have to be a big deal. It doesn't have to be confusing. Very often when, when I disciple, I just open God's word and read and then we talk about it. I don't have a curriculum. I don't have a, anything necessarily. I let God's word lead the way and then we talk and we pray, talk about life. Now, maybe you're on the other end and maybe you're a young believer or an immature believer. You may not even be a believer. And you're wondering, ah, what's the deal with all this stuff, right? Go up to someone that you know is spiritually mature or that you believe is spiritually mature and ask them if they'd be willing to disciple you. Ask them if they would be willing to meet with you and lead you along the way as a disciple of Christ. It doesn't have to be scary. It's not a big deal. When I look back and think about it, Bob pursued me and he asked me, and, you know, Bob's personality, you kind of just say yes when he suggests something, right? He suggested and I obeyed. <laughs> that's, that's the way that worked. But, uh, but get, get connected with somebody. Get connected with somebody. We need to be growing as disciples. And this whole idea of leadership development gets that much easier and makes that much more sense as we have a growing body of maturing believers. And so that's our desire and that's what we seek and Actually, even as we turn to the Lord's table now, and if the men who are serving could come forward, I'd appreciate it.